Hi, I'm Bailey Waters, and I'll be reading John 7, 1 through 24. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He did not wish to go about in Judea because the Jews were looking for an opportunity to kill him. Now the Jewish festival of booths was near. So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea so that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one who wants to be widely known acts in secret. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify against it that it works that its works are evil. Go to the festival yourselves. I am not going to this festival, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone to the festival, they also went, not publicly, but as if it were in secret. The Jews were looking for him at the festival and saying, Where is he? And there was considerable complaining about him among the crowds. While some were saying, He is a good man, others were saying, No, he is deceiving the crowd. Yet no one would speak openly about him for fear of the Jews. About the middle of the festival, Jesus went up into the temple and began to teach. The Jews were astonished at it, saying, How does this man have such learning when he has never been taught? Then Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. Anyone who resolves to do the will of God will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own. Those who speak on their own seek their own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and there is nothing false in him. Did not Moses give you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? Why are you looking for an opportunity to kill me? The crowd answered, You have a demon who is trying, you have a demon who is trying to kill you. Jesus answered them, I performed one work, and all of you are astonished. Moses gave you circumcision. It is, of course, not from Moses, but from the patriarchs. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath in order that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because I healed a man's whole body on the Sabbath? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. And now John 7 verses 45 to 52. Then the temple police went back to the chief priests and Pharisees, who asked them, Why did you not arrest him? The police answered, Never has anyone spoken like this. Then the Pharisees replied, Surely you have not been deceived too, have you? Has any one of the authorities or of the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd, which does not know the law, they are accursed. Nicodemus, who has gone to Jesus before and who was one of them, asked, our law does not judge people without first giving them a hearing to find out what they were doing, does it? They replied, Surely you are not also from Galilee, are you? Search and you will see that no prophet is to arise from Galilee. Hey, what's up, everyone? My name is Joel. I'm one of the pastors here at Resurrection City Church. Uh, thank you, Bailey, for reading this morning. Thank you for, for Thomas last week, for all the people that are helping us out. It's fun to see your faces on Sunday mornings as we uh, um, are currently not together, but uh, we will be here soon, um, and that's exciting to me. Um, but I'm glad that we can continue to connect with people online, too. It's, it's good to have options, um, uh, and we'll have plenty of options as we move forward here. Um, 
Uh, thank you for being here this Sunday morning. Um, like I said, my name is Joel, and uh, I'm one of the pastors here at Resurrection City Church. Uh, we uh, have ha- we we have a lot of fun uh, being with you every Sunday morning, knowing that you're able to engage with us um, uh, wherever you're at right now, um, probably on your couch and watching, and that's that's really fun. It's it's fun for us to know that we that you chose to be with us this, on this Sunday morning. So thank you uh, for allowing us to, to be in your home. Uh, on Sunday, on Sundays, um, uh, we're going to be doing question and, and response, question and answer at the end of the service, as always. So, if you have something that comes up in the sermon today that you'd like uh, to hear a response to, uh, you have a question about, you like a clarification on, uh, go ahead and throw in the comments. We'd love to uh, to engage with you that way. Um, I think it's a really fun and unique thing about us being online um, and a way for us to connect, uh, even though we're not together uh, currently. Um, uh, so, if you weren't here last week, we just started a new uh, series or mini series within the book of John, and we're calling it Devil's Advocate. And what we're doing is we're talking about uh, what it looks like or how we respond to opposition to Jesus coming. And we see this happen in the book of John to Jesus himself, and we experience it as well in our own day. And so, what we're doing is we're looking at uh, what happens when Jesus encounters opposition and how that sort of compares to or, 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 or gets onto the map of opposition that we experience today to the gospel, to Jesus. And we just kind of talk about the response that Jesus gives and how that's a response for us as well to opposition. So if you'd like some more, uh, a, a better picture of that, we kind of go more into depth on what it looks like of sort of the crashing together of these two kingdoms in last week's sermon. So if you didn't get a chance to see that, I encourage you to go and check that uh, out again. We have it on YouTube. You can also listen to it through our, our Spotify or iTunes or, or wherever you get podcasts uh, as well. So, so feel free to check that out. Now, uh, we're going to be starting, what we're starting today is sort of a one contained narrative encounter with Jesus and the authorities that lasts from chapter 7, which Bailey just read some of, all the way to chapter 10, verse 21. So it's kind of a, a long narrative chunk, and that's one of the cool things about the book of John is that John takes us into these really long extended conversations between Jesus uh, and there's a lot of nuance to what's going on. There's a lot of depth to it. Uh, there's also just a lot of content, and that's why Bailey didn't read the whole thing there. We tried to kind of pick the parts that we're going to really narrow or hone in on in today's uh, message, okay? And so uh, what I want to do is I just want to set up what's going on a little bit, and then we'll dive into the text, and then we'll we'll talk a little bit about how it connects to us today, um, okay? So in, in John 7, uh, verses 6 and 10, uh, we find that uh, Jesus and his... Um, his brothers are, are are talking to him about going to this festival, and they're they're a little bit like, uh, dude. If you're so great, why don't you go reveal to everyone who you are? You've been kind of cryptic up to this point about your messiahship, um, but why don't you go and and actually like get this started? I don't know why we don't know why you're just kind of going around and talking when you could be doing something. And the festival is the perfect way or the perfect place to go do that. And we'll talk about in just a second here why that is. But Jesus' response to them is is that uh, my time is not yet here uh, for you. Any time will do. L- listen, for you guys, you can go do whatever you want at any time. But what I'm doing is something different, and I can't just go and, and do it uh, at any time. And, and we'll see why here in just a second. Um, however, after his brothers had left for the festival, he went also, but not publicly, but in secret. So we do see that he decides to go, but 
he's doing it secretly. Now, why is the case? Why is it not the right time for Jesus to fully reveal his messiahship? Why, when he does go to the festival, does he choose to go secretly? And and I think when we read through the gospel sometimes, when we read Jesus in his, in his comments, um, we, uh, we read him like a walking, talking fortune cookie. We read him as this aloof sort of head in the clouds, revealing to us these sort of uh, above our head spiritual uh, like like comments that that don't make sense to us, but uh, we just kind of read it and we're like, well, this probably like seems really spiritual or whatever. But Jesus kind of just seems like uh, he's hard to understand. Uh, and I think what we we don't realize is actually Jesus is a is a really shrewd and and strategic and and even politically mindful in terms of what he's doing. He's very aware of the social environment of his day, and so when he chooses to wait, it's not just sort of like some object lesson for us about how God does things at his own time, although that is very much true, and God has plans and and um and then timing to what he does. And so it's it's like it's it's incumbent on us not to try to rush him or not to think we can rush him at least. But um he he he's thinking through the situation in a very practical sense. And he's aware that people there already want to seize him and make him king. And he's not ready for that. Now he will be in John 12. We, that, that's when Je- Jesus shows up uh coming into Jerusalem, riding on a donkey, this triumphal entry. This is what we celebrate as Christians on Palm Sunday, is Jesus showing up to Jerusalem in the sort of like, okay, we're doing this, uh, th- this messiahship thing. I'm not really hiding it anymore. I'm willing for, for, for people to celebrate me as such. But Jesus is not ready for that right now because he knows the timing is not right and people are going to seize him for the wrong reasons. And he wants it to happen on his own terms and in his timing. Now, why is he careful with this festival? Um, there's actually some, again, really practical reasons why this festival, he wants to show up to it secretly. Um, think about it like this. This is a festival where Israel is celebrating their freedom. Um, and and, they're, they're, and all these festivals are. They're celebrating their freedom. Now, Israel at the time is an oppressed people group. They are they're living under the thumb of the Roman Empire, and they've been living under the thumb of empires for the last 400 plus years. Okay, so this is this is becoming uh, something that is that is weighing on them, pressuring them. And and the and the Jewish people are are are, uh, are ripe for for revolution at this time. And, and so, uh, when you have all these people together celebrating in one place, celebrating their freedom, uh, and a lot of them are young men, it's a kind of a recipe for revolt. And, and, and actually, we know that several uh, in revolts or insurrections took place during festival times. We know that from other uh, documents outside the New Testament. So, Jesus wants to go to the festival, of, this festival of tabernacles, um, but he doesn't want to go there with the, with the assumption that everyone else has, that everyone is buzzing about right now, that the, this king is showing up, and he's ready uh, for uh, for us to grab him and make him king and, and get this whole thing started. That's what people want, and Jesus is, first of all, he doesn't want to do his messiahship thing that way, and second of all, he doesn't want to do it at this time yet. Now, he's also aware that these Jewish leaders are waiting on him, perhaps to arrest him, and so there's all this political tension that's going on. And the cool thing about this passage is we finally get a chance to talk about the, the boogeyman in the Gospels, the, the, the people who are always showing up, that we're always kind of, kind of talking about. Everyone is like aware of these guys, it seems like, the Pharisees. 
So I actually want to dive into what, what the Pharisees are a little bit today, because we're going to be talking about what's going on with them and how that maps on to sort of opposition to Jesus in the present today. So in sort of common Christian thinking, I think, most of us have grown up thinking that the Pharisees are this, uh, this sort of thought police who want to go around and make people try to earn their way to getting to heaven someday. And they do it by putting a bunch of laws on people and telling people, these are the laws you got to follow to get there. Now, there's some parts of this that are that are true and helpful, um, but there are other parts of it that are just really bad history. Okay, so I, I let me let me explain who the Pharisees actually were, at least as as far as we can tell. And this both comes from what we read in the New Testament and what we read outside of it. So you you should think of the Pharisees as a sort of like grassroots political pressure group, kind of like maybe the Tea Party or or like some of the the radical left groups that are out there trying to kind of pressure those in power to get across a certain agenda, uh, to sort of get get a certain agenda or policy pushed through for a specific reason. So they're not actually officially part of the political or religious structure, but they're trying to put pressure on those people who are in those places to sort of get, again, their, their, their agenda through. Now, some Pharisees are in these roles, but they're not necessarily all in it. In fact, most, most probably aren't. So you can kind of think of it like, you know, the t- there are Tea Party candidates in Congress, um, but the Tea Party is something that exists outside of, of the government. It's not an official government entity, and they're trying to influence those official government entities, okay? Uh, and, and so this caused them to clash with people in power often, uh, and, and they do this with the chief priests, actually. We, we, we see, you see the chief priests talked about in the Gospels, and you'll see the Pharisees talked about in the Gospels. They're not the same people. Um, there, there might be a little bit of crossover, but these people actually actually did not really get along very well. They were, they were like Democrats and Republicans. They're always bu- butting heads with one another. Um, and so the Pharisees don't actually have a lot of actual official political power. What they do seem to have, though, and we see this in the Gospels for sure and in outside of it as well, is that they seem to have influence power because they were very popular among the people. And that gave them a certain amount of power and, and reason to listen to what they had to say by those who actually were in power. Now, what was their agenda? What was their um, sort of ideology? What is it that they're pressuring those in power to sort of uh, to, to sort of do? Um, and, and sometimes it's kind of hard to tell specifically what it was, but it seems like that that in their mind they think God wants purity. Not just in the temple, okay? God, the, the temple is this place that is completely pure, completely uh, sanctified, made holy for God. But what's going on in the temple, though, we need to bring that outside of the temple into the life of all of Israel and to purify everything in Israel. Uh, and purity comes from a sort of litigious uh, cleansing of, of everything, sort of looking at everything we do and asking, how can we make this pure? And, and if, we, if we vocally enforce this purity on people, maybe through legislation, maybe through going around kind of spreading our message, then we believe that God is going to act and liberate us. He's going to bring his kingdom. He's going to throw off the pagan oppression that we're all facing. And he's going to act like he did uh, when we were in slavery in Egypt, when he set us free and when he made us his own people. He's going to do that again if we can enforce this purity and bring about change in the world. And so they're trying to uh, enforce pressure, uh, enforce those people in power to, to do legal, like, uh, legal stuff to sort of bring the purity out to all the people that is in the temple. Now, like with all groups, you actually had moderate 
and um, and extreme versions or wings of of the Pharisaical party, if we want to call it that, uh, that we know of. Um, but but this is largely their agenda. And because these people think that they speak for God, because they're they're the ones that think they know God's law, the, the Torah, the, this 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 code of conduct uh, that has been given to Israel uh, at, at the point of their being set free from from Egypt, um, they think they speak for God because they're the ones who have this law mastered. They think they know it, and that everyone else is not speaking for God in the way that they are. Now, naturally, this is going to bring about some conflict with Jesus because both claim to be speaking for God. And Jesus has some real uh, memorable zingers for the, for the Pharisees, uh, actually. And, and, and in the book of Matthew, we find some really good ones, okay? So Matthew 6, 5, Jesus is talking about prayer, but he, 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 doesn't, uh, he doesn't get past the opportunity to use this uh, as a chance to, uh, to sort of g- uh, give it a little dig to the Pharisees. Matthew 6, 5, he says, And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full." Uh, so what he's saying here is that the prayer, the, 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 whatever they're asking God for, that, that, that's not what they're actually doing it for. That's not what they're praying. That God is not their audience when they stand on the street corners praying in these sort of big ways for everybody to see how holy they are. Really, their audience is any people who are watching them pray. And so they're getting their actual reward when they get attention for what they're doing. The prayer is just an opportunity. That's what Jesus says that is actually going on with many of these Pharisees. When they sort of go out and talk like they're the ones who know what God wants and are trying so hard to bring that to earth. Jesus is saying, you just want to look good for other people. That's what you're actually out there for. Um, He actually goes further. He's even more offensive than this in Matthew 23, verse 27. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. So what he's talking about here are tombs, right? Places you put dead people. And he's saying a tomb is still a tomb, even if you give it a nice paint job on the outside. A tomb can look beautiful on the outside, but everybody knows on the inside, it's still filled with dead, smelly corpses. That's all that it is. Uh, does, you know, dust and bones, and, and it's, it dis- it's disgusting when you get inside and actually see what's going on. Jesus is saying... You Pharisees have crafted your image. You have a great PR people. You really know what you're doing on social media to, to put together this sort of perfect image of yourselves. But really, that's all you are, is what people see on the outside. On the inside, uh, there's no life in you. And no amount of, of having it put together on the outside can spark life in something that is actually dead on the inside. And so what we encounter in the Pharisees is what we might call uh, uh, legalism or moralism. Uh, it looks good on the outside because that is where all the attention is at. But on the inside, there's nothing there. And this is the trap of what we could call Pharisaism or moralism. If we scrub everything up on the outside, it doesn't matter what's going on under the hood. And we, we think that we can trick God into making him think that we're pure and responding uh, because of that, rewarding us for our purity, getting him to do what we want because we're so great. 
And this is not just a problem in Jesus's day. We face the same thing today. And that's the opposition I want to talk about today. Remember, with each of these devil's advocate sermons, we're going to be talking about a certain opposition that Jesus encounters that is still an opposition for us. And the opposition today is what I want to call the new moralism, the, the new version of this that we face today in our present world. Now, I think there's a lot of people out there um, who would say we live in a world that is is totally amoral, that is like has no uh, care in the world for morals. It just wants to go out and do whatever it wants to to, to kind of live according to its own lies, to be very uh, licentious and free. And I think that that that's true to a degree. But if you really stop and look at it, we are just as moralistic as ever today. We we have as much moralistic zeal as any time in human history going on in America right now. I would say. But the thing that about it is different is that the targets have changed. Um, uh, the, 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 the things that we're enforcing, the, the morals that we have that we think everyone needs to follow, that's changed. Okay, And so instead of someone, instead of being enforced on you in the past like a sexual uh, morality, right? That, that is what, what, what Christians are known for maybe or what we, we push against, what the culture responds against is like, oh, pushing what your views on sex on us or something like that. Okay, That's gone now, right? But inst- you, would, you are just as likely to have like an ecological morality pushed on you. This is the right way to live in the environment and you have to follow this. Everyone needs to follow this and, and we got to bring change to the earth because of this. And, and we're willing to kind of push d- different types of morals on people today. So we're just as moralistic as anybody in history. Now, here's the, the, the problem with moralism, like I said before, is it's more concerned with, with how I look on the outside than who I actually am on the inside. A lot. To, the problem with moralism is often not the, the, the morals that you're pushing, although that can be true too. The problem with moralism is that the, the concern is just on what it looks like, just on the things that you're doing and not on what's going on in the inside. It's, 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 it's concerned with the, what the tomb looks like on the outside, but it's not concerned with what's on the inside of it. Okay? Uh, and so, so the question we often ask, have to ask ourselves is, is do we want to save the planet or, or do we want to make people think that we want to save the planet really badly? Or, or, or the question is, is, do I care about black lives? Do I actually want to make, make it so black lives do matter in the world? Or do I want people to just think I really care about black lives and, and that they matter? That's the thing that we come up against a lot uh, in, in our culture. Okay, And so what we do is we sort of go from uh, we find this on the internet especially, people going from moral outrage to moral outrage. And, and the street corners changed, right? The street corner in Jesus' day was a literal street corner. Today, it's, 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 it's Twitter, it's, it's Facebook, it's Instagram, it's social media. It's wherever you might have a platform for people to see you. People go from, from moral outrage to moral outrage, making sure that everyone who can hear us knows how morally enlightened we are. And that's really the goal. That's, the goal is in and of itself, and the reward is people seeing us looking good uh, in whatever space we're in. Saying we really need change, but really caring more that people see us as people who want change than really actually doing something about it. And people who are actually the, the ones who, who are, who are the, the, the objects uh, of maybe of discrimination can see that a lot of times. I, a couple of examples here. One, this I found this on the AND campaign. Um, this is a great Christian coalition for engaging uh, politically uh, in a sort of nonpartisan way with sort of compassion and conviction of the gospel as they're guiding uh, um, 
uh, as their guidelines as how they do this. I saw them post this on their Instagram today, and they were retweeting someone named Lisa Victoria. I don't know who she is, but she had a great point where she said that many young professionals want to be an advocate for the marginalized, but they don't want to be around the marginalized. Okay, so they want people to think that they're an advocate, but they don't actually want to do anything to help. Uh, I was reading an article in the New York Times as well today, just kind of skimming through it, where it was just talking about how many black activists are, are, are wondering if protesting for white people is just a trend. It's just sort of a fad. It's a cool thing to do right now that they can post on social media, and they're really afraid that the, the fervor is going to die out and no real change is actually going to come about from all of it. All right, And, and that sort of just speaks to the, 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 the moral landscape today. Now, there's actually psychological reasons why we do this. Um, Molly Crockett, she's a psychologist at Yale, says that we express moral outrage over things. We're looking for support. Okay, we, we, when we express moral outrage, we want to be supported in that. We want people to see what we're doing. And when we do, if the expression is supported, actually the brain's dopamine pathways get triggered. So, so we actually feel positive reinforcement in our heads when people see us going out and being really, you know, really moral. And this is why we want an audience. This is why we care. This is why so much of what we're, we're conditioned to do when it comes to being good is, is concerned with what people see us. Now, all of this is put on steroids in the, in the technological age that we live in today. Uh, she says this. This is a quote from the article I read. The rewards are also amplified by another powerful player, social media companies. In an effort to engage users for as long as possible on their platforms, many companies employ algorithms that prioritize content in feeds that is emotional in nature and is likely to contain examples of moral outrage. Okay, so literally the, 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 the platforms that we go on to to express our feelings on things are actually uh, rewarding us when we express moral outrage and when we get a lot of attention from it. So naturally, we're going to keep going back to that and our brains are going to be wired to, to invite us to show moral disgust with things and get rewarded for it with likes and shares. Okay, And so this is what the new moralism looks like in our society today. And a way that this really happens, the thing that we're going to be tempted to do often, the, the way that this looks like practically for us as we use social media or not, it doesn't have to come through social media, is something called virtue signaling. Okay. Now, th th this is what uh, Jeffrey Miller, he's a psychologist at the University of New Mexico, call, this is what his definition of, of virtue signaling is, is showing off the traits and values that are considered morally good by others in a way that gains you as a signaler some kind of social status benefit. So we feel the need to sort of signal to culture that we're righteous. And, and so some examples of this are, uh, like, remember the filters that used to be on Facebook? You could, like, pray for Paris filters or whatever. You could put this over there to make sure everyone knew that you were paying attention to what was going on across the world and that you cared. But that's all you were doing, right? Um, uh, posting on social media sort of signal, these are my values. And can you believe that there are others that don't share them out there? Um, uh, yard signs. This is actually a, apparently a, a Minnesota thing. Uh, I was talking to someone recently who had moved to Minnesota recently. It was like, I'm surprised. Where do these yard signs come from? Why, why do people put these in their yard? But you know what I'm talking about. You see yard signs that people put up to sort of signal to you, this is what we care about at this house, whatever it is, right? And, and there are all sorts of different things you can put out there. But what we're doing is we're trying to let everybody else around us know, hey, we're one of the good guys because we uh, we're, and we're showing it to you. Now, 
what these are is are these small sort of low cost expressions that make us feel the f in our in our brains the full effect of the reward uh, the same as if we were actually were virtuous okay we, we feel like if we put a yard sign in our yard we're just as good as someone who goes out there and actually is like you know an activist full time working for whatever this thing is that we care about that we think is morally good um, and what happens is in our society especially is we get drunk on our own righteousness we get drunk on our own uh, moral superiority over everybody else, and it leads us to have this sort of elitism, this moral elitism. Now, the, this is not a new phenomenon. Jesus calls out the Pharisees, or sorry, John, I guess, calls out the Pharisees for this as well in, in John 7, 45 to 49. Finally, the temple guards went back to the chief priests and the Pharisees who asked them, why didn't you bring him in? So, so the Pharisees had spent, sent these temple guards out to get Jesus. They'd been like, Ah, uh, why are we arresting this guy? He's actually um, he's actually pretty pretty awesome. Like, have you heard what he's saying? And and, and their response to them uh, is is um, for the Pharisees to say, uh, "You mean he's deceived you also?" The, the Pharisees retorted, "Have any of the rulers of the Pharisees believed in him? No, but this mob that knows nothing of the law, there's a curse on them. So in their minds, they knew what the law was. They were the ones who, who, who studied it every day and let everybody know that they knew it. And they wouldn't be easily deceived by this sort of charlatan Jesus who's coming and saying something else. He's one of the bad guys because he's standing up to us. We're the good guys. You know how we know we're the good guys? Because we know this law super well. And it led to this sort of elitism. And moralism always has as its end goal this sort of uh, this sort of turn to elitism to, to to see the world in terms of good people and bad people and to see ourselves as the good people and to sort of bring it against everyone else who's one of the bad people that's the world in which moralism uh, creates but we're mistaken when we think that and that's our first point of application today is that mere possession of the law does not make you righteous this is what we think is knowing what's good whatever that is whatever is is maybe trendy i think that's the, that's what it is a lot of times is whatever's trendy we think knowing what's trendy makes us righteous just having the law having possession of it is enough to make us righteous and the pharisees were like this too like they knew the law they, they had torah and they knew it so well that they uh would go and create laws on top of the the old law that was given um as a way to sort of uh, uh you know legislate out the perfect version of this they knew it very well um but what happens when you have the law when you think you have it is is it doesn't lead to righteousness it doesn't guarantee righteousness but it actually guarantees something else and that thing that it guarantee, guarantees is actually condemnation knowing the law means that you know better and and when you break it which is something we all do you're inviting all of the force of that condemnation of that onto yourself and jesus says this to them in, in john 7 uh, 19 to 24 he says has not moses given you the law yet not one of you actually keeps the law if you're being honest with yourselves none of you follow this perfectly so why are you trying to kill me stop judging by mere appearances but instead judge correctly stop caring about what people think about you and thinking well if you know if we're really the righteous ones who know the law we got to kill this guy who's against it that's all that your motivation is jesus says actually what you find is that you are condemned by your own law by your need to sort of uh enforce this you become a transgressor of it yourself you and you will find this when, when you are 
when you think that, that, that owning the law will give you righteousness, the more you know it, the more you realize you don't stand up to it, you will find that you are not actually woke enough. You are not actually committed enough to social justice. You will see all the ways in which you fail that. And because our, our, our culture, and the, the hard part about this is because our culture is based in this sort of emotivism and sort of living out of whatever our feelings are, we talked about this in last week's sermon, if you, if you don't know what I'm talking about, um, morality is constantly changing. So even if you know what it is now, five years from now, you're going to find out that all the stuff you thought was the right thing is actually now the wrong thing, and now you're condemned by it because that stuff that you posted on Instagram is still there, and people can bring that out and, and, and you, you know, embarrass you because of all the things you used to say. We see that happen all the time. And now you need to be hashtag canceled because of, of your past transgressions or mistakes. We see that with a lot of celebrities a lot of times. Okay, uh, If you, if you want to live by the sword, you're going to die by the sword. That's a saying for people who are all about uh, using a certain thing as, 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 as sort of their operating uh, factor in their life. You're going to be condemned by that thing. The same is true with moralism. If you live by moralism, you're going to die by moralism too. The whole system is flawed. The whole thing falls apart if you try to truly live it out fully. The, 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 pro, the, the, the thing is, is that righteousness has to come apart from our own tainted efforts. It has to come apart from our own uh, following of the law, whatever the law is. For the Pharisees, it was the law of Israel. For us today, it's the laws that we create that we think give us righteousness, but actually end up showing us how far short we fall, even of the laws we create for ourselves, which themselves are often going to be tainted or fallen because of what they're created by, which is fallen humans. Okay, our best version of living more turns us into hypocrites. Uh, it turns us into be, being condemned by our own, our own law. Uh, our best work, our best efforts to purify turn into nothing more than look at me, look how great I am, even as you become more and more aware of your own transgression, of your own laws, uh, and your effort to make people think that you're great, confusing that with the real thing, when really deep down, it's just a crypt down there. Uh, the more you dress up the outside, the more and more you realize what's on the inside is not is not fit what's on the outside. And so, uh, in this morally outright, outraged time, what we need is we need to find righteousness, we need to think about righteousness and goodness in the way that is given to us through Christianity, through what is given to us in the gospel. And this is our second point of application today, is that righteousness, goodness, moral uprightness only comes from the one who is righteous. What we need is not a righteousness that we generate from ourselves, but a righteousness that comes from somewhere else and is given to us freely, despite our efforts, despite our best efforts, despite the best things that we can offer. We need it to be given to us freely because if we try to earn it, we are not measuring up. And, and, and so, and we see this in, in the book of Romans, actually, in chapter 3, verse 21. Uh, Paul, the apostle Paul's writing on this specific point. He says, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law, the Torah, the same law that the Pharisees had, to which this and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith, and uh, faith in, or the faithfulness of Jesus Christ to all who believe, okay? Apart from the law, he says, is where righteousness is known. It was made known by God. 
God, because the law is just going to condemn you. It's just going to bring you back underneath itself and show you how you don't measure up. It needs to come apart from that. And the way that it's given is through faith in or the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. Now, this this, this phrase here, the reason I have it both ways, you've probably always heard it as faith, the faith in Jesus Christ. Actually, the, the, the Greek word there can be translated both ways. It can either be translated the faith in Jesus Christ or the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. Now, at the at the at the end of the day, actually, the point remains the same. It doesn't actually matter. What Paul's saying here is that the one who is faithful, the one who comes and fulfills God's purposes, who fulfills his law, who fulfills what it is that God desires in earth, the only one who does that is Jesus Christ himself. And when we put our trust, our reliance in his righteousness, we gain that for ourselves, apart from our efforts. Jesus is faithful to be God's kingdom agent, his righteous one, his kingdom bringer. And when we don't boast on our own efforts, when we don't make it about us, but we make it about what he's done, we are given that righteousness as well. And that's what it means to be good or righteous in Christianity, is to boast in the one who's faithful and to live out the gift of his righteousness. That's what we're offered. That's what living morally uprightly, living righteously looks like to the Christian. It is a way of, of, a, of a, a soft yoke that comes off of our, uh, off of our shoulders. It is the way of not uh, being condemned by our failures, but in fact finding grace for our failures. It, it is the way that knows that true life is coming through our efforts because it is rooted in the one who himself died and rose again to bring about God's good uh, plan, his good efforts in the world. And it doesn't rest on us and our own um, our own ability because that is going to fail. And I think the more and more we look at ourselves, the more and more we look at society, we see that. We see that it cannot bring what it promises, but Jesus can. I'm going to pray for us uh, to close here. And then we have, we have a question, it seems like. I'll answer that. Uh, I'll, I'll respond to that question after I pray. Lord, we thank you that you care about righteousness, Lord, just as much as anybody here on earth does, Lord. You care about it, but you don't expect us to bring it on our own. You, you, you understand that we will fail because of sin to bring about the righteousness that is needed to truly change the world. And we thank you that we can find our righteousness in your Son, given to us freely, a burden that we do not have to carry, but one that sets us free to actually live out the righteousness that is given to us. I pray that that would be our mindset, that would be our our goal, our desire, Lord, in, in everything that we walk through, Lord. As we walk through these sort of um, morally uncharted territory, this time of intense um, outrage and, and true uh, focus on injustice in the world, Lord, that we would find righteousness in you and not be tempted to try to find it in our own efforts, God. We pray for this in the name of the one who is faithful, Jesus. Amen. All right, so we have a we have a question. Yes, our question is, uh, do you think it's okay, so this is in regards to kind of some of the um, advocacy work and different things, so do you think it's okay to fake it until you become it? For example, you start advocating for a cause you believe in until your heart and your actions change, or do you think that your heart has to be changed first? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think that uh, there is a sense in which we... Um, so, okay, so I'm going to get a little wonky right now. 
there's different types of ethics um, that like d- different different types of ethical systems in the world, um, and I think I personally am what I would call a virtue ethic vir- virtue ethic ethicist. <laughs> I, I'm like I'm a big fan of virtue ethics. Now, virtue ethics it, it says we um, we put practices on ourselves that sort of create in us like. Uh, that we sort of become what we practice. And we see this is, is true in all sorts of things. You get better at sports by practicing the thing over and over and over again. You become better uh, a better musician by practicing over and over again. We will become better at living uh, out what, whatever, whatever moral system we're trying to live out if we try to practice it. So I do think it's important that we, um, that we put practices in place and we push ourselves and we sort of give ourselves discipline to live morally. I do think that that's true, okay? But I think that that's still different than saying um, if we just do these good works and we legislate it out, then that makes us good. I think the, the thing about Christian virtue ethics is what is what we're doing when we p- put these practices in place to make us uh, live out the, 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 the gospel is we're doing it in response to actually truly being changed. And we have to live out of that change. If you put the works or the practice before the heart change, um, it, it can't bring the heart change. The heart change has to precede the practices. But I do still think, I, I think sometimes we can hear this message of righteousness not coming from ourselves but from God, and we can think, cool, I don't have to do anything now, and I'm just good. That's what Christianity is, is I just you know have faith in Jesus, and I can do whatever the heck I want. And that's not what Christianity is. Christianity is we are made new in our hearts. God changes us. Jesus grips our hearts. He makes us new on the inside. He takes Okay, th- this is where that the sort of whitewashed tomb metaphor is pointing forward towards uh, the resurrection of Jesus because Jesus was himself a dead body inside of a tomb, but God made that life inside the tomb new. He resurrected it. And so inside of our own hearts, we are resurrected in the way that Jesus is resurrected, um, and then we live that out. Now, the way that we live that out is, I think, through putting on practices. And I think we could call that the, the Christian sort of uh, discipline of sanctification, of being made more and more into the image of Christ. But we have to remember that what we're being made into is something that is already true of us because of Jesus, through justification. Okay, Our justification has to precede our sanctification. Okay, so I think you're asking the right question. Those two things have to go together, but the order in which they come is super important, okay? So great question, uh, whoever asked it. I'm actually really glad you did because I think that's an important uh, thing to talk about. So I'm glad that you asked it.